All right, so we are back, obviously, in our study of Genesis, and it kind of dawned on me this week that um, you know every every week at the beginning of my little notes here that I that I use this little note app that I use, um, I always just sort of do a copy of the last week's lesson and copy it into the new week, and then I start kind of figuring out what do I need to review, what do I need to cut out. That's where I always start. But the first thing I have to do is I have to change the, the number of the lesson that we're in. So that's my first step. So I kind of, first thing I did that, and I, I put, we're now in lesson number 10 of our study. Now, here's the thing. Um, you know, we've been, ta- we've been pointing out different um, elements of the creation narrative that really put on display the power and glory and, and just omniscience of the creator God before our very eyes in this creation account. But if you want another one, just think about this for a second. We're in lesson number 10 of a study of Genesis, and it's been taking place over a number of multiple weeks, and it only took God seven days to create the whole world. So it's taken me longer just to talk about the creation narrative than it did for God to actually do it. So that kind of puts things in perspective, both of God's power and my complete limitation. So little little anecdote there for you. You also hopefully will recall, those of you that have been with us all along, <clears throat> will recall that we've put a pretty significant emphasis, especially early on, on the importance of us recognizing presuppositions in this kind of study, uh, really in any kind of uh, thought exercise, but, but really in particular in this kind of study when you're studying origins and you're particularly casting that kind of study up against sort of secular scientific worldviews. And presuppositions being sort of just simply preset ways of thinking that we bring to any discussion or any study or any exploration or any scientific experiment or anything, any research endeavor, preset ways of thinking or, or predetermined conclusions that we bring to that that then inform how we look at that body of information, that research endeavor, that particular perspective on life, that philosophical idea, whatever it might be. We have these predetermined ways of thinking that inform how we view those things, how we interpret those things, and the conclusions that we draw once we start reviewing them, researching them, and interpreting them. Okay? And we've talked about the importance of recognizing that, both understanding as Christians, we bring to the table, especially in the subject matter of origins of the universe, of creation, we bring uh, certain presuppositions that we just need to happily and readily admit. Namely, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's our big, massive presupposition. But I want to kind of do a little test here, and I might start doing this every week as I think of it, maybe as I come across articles. But I've talked about how it's important that as you're hearing different things from uh, particularly the scientific community and discoveries. I mean, there's always articles, uh, you know, online and the different science sections of news sites and all that, of new discoveries of this and new conclusions about that. You'll see on and on and on as, as science continues to explore and conduct experiments and, and advance in technology and so forth. But I'm going to read a little article to you as a point of introduction and see if you guys can recognize the presupposition that's informing uh, uh, the last little bit of this article. So it's talking about the grand opening announcement of the Noah's Ark expedition that Answers in Genesis is opening up in, in the summer uh, up in Kentucky, a big, a big sort of uh, uh, replica of the Noah's Ark, um, just a big museum attraction and everything at the, crea- at the Creation Museum area. 
Anyway, um, they announced the, the grand opening of that this week. And um, it says that the grand opening of Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky is expected to come next summer, the builders working on the park said. Answers in Genesis, the Christian ministry leading the project, said they anticipate opening the park, visitors on, opening the park to visitors on July 7th. The massive 510-foot-long 510, 510 wooden boat is the $90 million first phase of the planned religious theme park. Answers in Genesis founder Ken Ham says work on the boat and the stern will begin soon. We believe that we're going, uh, we're, what we're doing here in, particular li- uh, in this particular life-size reconstruction will be the most authentic and realistic reconstruction of Noah's Ark in the world, Ham said during a media gathering on the ship's deck Thursday. So here's the thing. The building of the park has been a source of much controversy over the, le- over the years leading up to its groundbreaking stage. The state gave final approval for a tourism tax incentive to the project in 2011, but slow fundraising hampered the Ark's development and the builders had to reapply. The group received backlash after the state rejected the second application for an $18 million sales tax incentive, citing the growing concerns of religious indoctrination. So they had a tax advantage in one point, and now they don't, and they're talk- they're, they're, the state is concerned about religious indoctrination here. So it says, um, uh, since educator, uh, science educators, including TV star Bill Nye, have criticized the ARC project, saying it could divert young people away from taking an interest in science. Nye debated Ham on a widely, at a widely seen event online last year. Nye said, and here's, here's the, the catch statement here, Nye said, if Noah's Ark had actually been built, it would have been destroyed by the sea. What's the presupposition he's bringing to that conclusion? Anyone? That it wasn't built, but what's even pre before that conclusion? And if it, so, if you go back to the the flood narrative, what do you what do you see happening from Genesis all the way through till you get to the flood narrative? You see what God involved in all of these things. So, if you think about what he's saying, is is that even if this big giant boat could have been built, there's no way it could have survived a flood like that because it would have been destroyed. There's just no way. Like, if you just think about, you know, the nature of, of building technology back and during that time and how they could have constructed it and what materials they would have been able to use and all those kinds of things, you just use p- completely sort of materialistic kind of views on this. There's no way that a boat built that back in that time that big could have stayed together in those kinds of waters. He's leaving out one massive point here in that the flood and Noah and his family on the ark with all the animals was God's way of preserving the earth, the future of the earth after he destroyed the rest of it, right? So is it not fair to say that maybe God superintended that? I mean, is it not fair to say, I mean, in other words, our presupposition would be God could have set them on a bucket of leaves and sustained them in the most torrential of waters, right? That's our presupposition. Our presupposition is a supernatural presupposition. But Bill Nye is saying, it just, it just, there's no way that you should believe in this because a, a boat like this wouldn't have survived on the sea. So that's what I want you guys to kind of keep in mind as you read these different things. That has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. That's Noah's Ark. That was just a little exercise. So let's get into our, our study. We are in Creation Day 6, and we're talking about the creation of man. And there's just so much to really talk about here. Um, in, in chapter 1, verses 20, uh, 24 and following of, of the creation narrative. 
And um, we've been talking about this in the, in, the, in the way of looking at it as a biblical anthropology um, and really contrasting a biblical anthropology with that of current secular worldview. And there's a great clash here that, that the creation narrative in general often points out to us, but in specific, when you look at the creation of man, it is in direct conflict. I mean, like violent conflict with all of the secular worldviews that are out there today about where we came from and what our purpose is and all these things. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's, here's an example of the sort of the, the modern secular scientific sort of evolutionary mindset and, and what it does, what the conclusions you have to draw are from that mindset on the value of, of man relative to what we're going to look at today. Listen to this from uh, Back to the Beginning, um, John MacArthur's book, or excuse me, Battle for the Beginning. The drift of modern society proves the point. We are witnessing the abandonment of moral standards and the loss of humanity's sense of destiny. Rampant crime, drug abuse, sexual perversion, rising suicide rates, and the abortion epidemic are all symptoms that human life is being systematically devalued and that an utter sense of futility is sweeping over society. These trends are directly traceable to the ascent of evolutionary theory. And why not? If evolution is true, humans are just one of many species that evolved from common ancestors. We're no better than animals, and we should ought, and we should ought not think that we are. If we evolved from sheer matter, why should we esteem what is spiritual? In fact, if everything evolved from matter, nothing spiritual is real. We ourselves are ultimately no better than or, than or different from any other living species. We are nothing more than protoplasm waiting to become manure. As a matter of fact, that is precisely the rationale behind the modern animal rights movement, a movement whose uh, rationale is the utter degradation of the human race. Naturally, all radical animal rights advocates are evolutionists. Their belief system is an inevitable byproduct of evolutionary theory. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, also known as PETA, is well known for its stance that animal rights are equal to or more important than human rights. They maintain that killing any animal for food is the moral equivalent of murder. Eating meat is virtually cannibalism, and man is a tyrant species detrimental to his environment. PETA opposes the keeping of pets as companion animals, including guide dogs for the blind. A 1988 statement distributed by the organization includes this. As John, quote, as John Bryant has written in his book, Fettered Kingdoms, companion animals are like slaves, even if well-kept slaves. Ingrid Newkirk, PETA's controversial founder, says, quote, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Newkirk told the Washington Post reporter, that the atrocities of Nazi Germany pale by comparison to the killing animals for food. Quote, six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. That is... That is an example of the stark contrast you have, but that's, a, that's a good, also a good example of the logical end game for any kind of evolutionary concept of man. If we just came from some primordial 
ooze or whatever, and we've just evolved over time as just part of a long chain of evolution and change and, 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 and that kind of thing and, and became what we are today, but we're really no different than, than animals, then you can't philosophically invest any more value into man or into humans than you would into broiler chickens. That's really the logic that you have to go by. The last time we looked at some very key distinguishing characteristics of the actual text in Genesis 1 as it describes the creation of man. And the text itself, just by virtue of the text and and what's written, the words on the page in Genesis chapter 1 when you pick it up in verse 24, and just the the way that that creation account of man is is written and the terms that are used, set it apart completely from the rest of the creation narrative by stark contrast. And we looked at some of those. So let's read the text and we'll, and we'll kind of get back into this, this look at the creation of man. Looking in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And then we get to that pinnacle moment. And God said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, we talked about this a little bit. We kind of identified by, just by observation, some of these distinguishing characteristics of this part of the creation narrative that set it off against the rest of the creation narrative that precedes it. But I want to kind of break that down in a little more detail, put a little more finer point, on this part of the, of the creation narrative and the creation of man. And the first thing I want us to notice is that you have this divine distinction in the creation of man. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, and you find that just right there in the text where you start off with this monumental shift from creation by divine fiat or divine command to this divine deliberation. Last time I kind of termed it this Trinitarian council where, where God says, let us. There's this change even in the language of the text. You have going from divine fiat, which is stated in terms like starting in verse 3, let there be light. Verse 6, let there be an expanse, let it separate. Verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. In verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures. So you always start off by, by this, this, this statement, then God said, or God said, and then you have all these 
creation commands, let there be, let there be, let the waters gather, let the earth sprout, let there be lights. But then you get to verse 26 and you see this divine deliberation, this divine counsel, this divine sort of communication within the Godhead that takes place there when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This massive shift in the text, and it moves from what is, what is more characteristically impersonal in the creation, like let it be and it was so, to a more personal engagement of the actual nature and essence of the Godhead in this deliberation of creation. It goes from impersonal command to personal engagement. And this divine distinction in, in the creation narrative here, in the creation of man, is vividly illustrated for us in that we get this glimpse, this tiny little glimpse, and I don't want to overstate this. I mean, the text says what it says, so I don't want to try to embellish it and make it look like it says more than it does. But you do get somewhat of a glimpse into this sort of the secret, sacred counsel of God that we don't normally get. You don't normally see this. Uh, When God decrees something, he just says, let it be. This will happen. I will do this. But in the creation of man, as it rolls out here in this text, we kind of get this glimpse, this, this little slight glimpse into this sort of this sacred counsel in the Godhead. Very unique. And, and it's like he's contemplating this next creative act that's going to be this seminal, climactic creative act in the creation of man. And, and the text is written in such a way that we are to notice this. We, we don't just pass by this and say, oh, and then God said, let's make man in our image. Yippee. So he made man in our image. If we, if we look at it that way, then we're basically falling into the trap of not seeing the, the wonder and beauty of why God created man and the purpose that he invests in that creation of man that has bearing on you and me even today. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So we get this this glimpse of this divine deliberation that takes place when he says, let us make man in our image. It establishes a personal relationship between God and man that does not exist with any other element of creation. Very distinct. Now we talked a little bit about this last week, how this gives us a glimpse of the triune nature of God. You know, when you start thinking about um, um, doctrinal truths or points of theology, one of the more um, difficult to really grasp uh, characteristics or, or doctrinal matters is the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, can you just really quickly and, and completely logically say God is three but one, but but he's three, but three and one, but he's not three. There's one God. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, the language itself begins to feel a little bit clunky and a little bit irrational. But what we see clearly revealed in Scripture is God is three in one. He is a triune God, but nevertheless one God. And I think that when we look at this a little bit more closely, when we, especially when we look at the, the image of God language here and the implications that that has on us, um, We'll see a little bit more of that coming out as, as, as a clear indication of God's essence. But, but you do have a reference, not necessarily, you know, I'm not saying that Moses, as he was writing Genesis, 
knew in his mind that there's the Father and then there's the Spirit, and we already have the Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters in Genesis 1-2, so we know that there was that identification there. But I'm not saying that Moses had in his mind a fully formed conception of the incarnate Son of God who would come to die on the cross and redeem all those who would believe, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that he had that full conception, but clearly there's this, there's this conception of a plurality of personhood in the Godhead that he, he understood and, and wrote about under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, of course. But really it points to this, this recognition that relationship is an essential attribute of the essence of God. That, so, so when we talk about having a relationship with God, we're not just talking about this idea of us having this vertical relationship with God. We're talking about us relating to God and God relating to us is part of who God is. God is relationship in his very essence. Again, stuff that's hard to kind of really fully understand and and, and to really put practical sort of imagery in our, our minds around, but that's what we see here. And you see that all throughout Scripture uh, in particular. In the Gospels, it's on full display. When you see the relationship of the Son with the Father and the Father with the Son, and we have a few Scriptures that we'll look at in just a minute. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that God is a, a relational God because relationship is actually part of His essence. In other words, it's not that God is a God who just likes to hang out with people. Okay, we got we got to kind of not diminish this attribute of the living God in that he is a, a, a triune God, that he is a plurality of, of essence, of, of personhood in the Godhead. We, we can't diminish that by just kind of thinking of God as kind of like we think we're relational. You know, like I'm extrovert, like I took a test and I'm real social, so I need to be in sales or I need to be in customer service. And so God, he's really social, you know, I mean, like he, that's, that's, that's really diminishing it. But I, and I don't mean to be totally um, silly in my, in my, my description here, but I think that we, we have a tendency, even though we don't intentionally diminish the character of God, I mean, it's not like we're trying to do that, it's that we don't push ourselves to think very clearly about God and, 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 and who he is in essence. God is not just relational in that he likes to have communion or conversation with, with humans. God is, in essence, a relational being in the Godhead alone before he created anything or anyone, okay? That's the nature of who he is. And we see this, we get this glimpse of this relational nature of God. And we talked about this last week, how um, there's, an, there's, an, there's an indication here uh, in the use of the plural word for God, Elohim, in 21 verses prior to this. Um, so you have the plural use of Elohim, the name for God, but it's used with singular verbs. So you've got this plural name for God, but singular verbal action taking place in the language here. Interesting construction there. But also, um, you have um, this indication of the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. And then we have, obviously, progressive revelation that we talked about last week in John chapter 1, where... We see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we know by virtue of, of us being on this side of the cross and this side of Christ and His ministry and, and, and His sacrificial work on the cross, we know that He was with God in creation as well. So we have that revelation from John chapter 1. But you have this divine deliberation, this Trinitarian council that completely sets off 
this part of creation to really give us an indication of this divine distinction in the creation of man. And how that sort of cries out, just sort of pushes back on any notion of evolutionary thinking at all. And any, any notion of degrading the nature of man and the essence of man and the value and the dignity of man. And that's what I want to highlight next. In this creation narrative, you see a divine dignity and purpose in the creation of man. Divine dignity and purpose. A, 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 a divine honoring, a divine setting apart, and a divine purpose given in the creation of man. We talked about this last week, and I'm going to kind of run through these first few, and then we're going to settle in on, on the image of God references as kind of our, our resting point for the rest of the time. We talked about how you have here this identification of the singularity of the species of man. And that's contrasted with the rest of creation of according to its kind, that language. So you create, he created uh, plants, each according to their kind, and he created the, 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 fish, the creatures of the sea and the, the birds of the air, and then he created livestock and creeping things and beasts and so forth, each according to their kind. But then when you get to the creation of man, you have this singularity of species. God created man. In other words, mankind. The, the, the human species, not multiple versions, not, you know, you know, the, the chart that shows the, the primitive man and all, he's kind of slumped over like this and all of a sudden he's standing up. That's not what you see here, right? You don't see that. You see mankind. Okay. And then there's this distinction of gender, male and female. There's where the distinction is. It's not a distinction of, of human species, at all. It's just man, singularity of the species. And then there's a contrast of gender within that singular species. The other thing we pointed out last time, I just want to mention it again, you do not have racial distinctions infused in this. Now just think about, think about the, the implications of racial distinctions on our experience of life on this planet now. This, this world is fraught with ethnic and racial conflict, is it not? That is not part of God's created order or created design. That is a post-fall issue, a post-fall construct. Now, this is important for us to recognize, okay? And we're going to talk about this toward the end here. This, this, not this one point alone, but just this idea that, yes, we live in a post-fall world. And so, you know, you start to think, well... Great. So we talk about how this whole issue, for example, of race distinction was something that was not in the created order of things. It was something that that was brought in after the fall as a result of sin. But what good does that do me now? Because I have to live in this world that's post-fall, and I have to deal with the racial conflict and the ethnic conflict and tension. So all that does is make me feel kind of bummed out because I'm living in a post-fall world. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. We need to have a very clear understanding of God's created purpose in things. Okay? We'll talk about that in a second. And so this this racial distinction, this lack of racial distinction, I should say, in the created order of man is an important thing to recognize. Again, God created male and female, both in the image of God. So there's no sort of um, premium placed on man in terms of his being an image bearer of God, but there is distinction of gender. And again, we talked about this a little bit last week, but 
we have, we live in a day and time where there's just an effort to completely erase distinctions of genders, right? Just completely erase it. That's not, that's not how God created us. That's not how we were created. We were created male and female with distinctions. Same before God as image bearers, but distinct in our gender and our role and our function that we'll see as we go forward in our study. We have here another uh, um, example of this divine dignity and purpose that we've been given. We see a little bit of a glimpse of this blessing of marriage, family, and work that really gets more blown out for us in chapter 2, more, more highlighted, more elaborated on. We'll talk about it more at length when we get there. But you have the procreation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, another emphasis on a gender distinction and the necessity of that. But this, this idea of, of building families, of producing families, producing offspring. And really, you could say that that's sort of the beginning of, of forming institutions of society, the family being at the, the core of that. And then you have the work mandate to fill the earth, and then it says to subdue it. That's this, this reference to really working the ground and, and subduing the earth to produce fruit, to work the ground. And then you have the dominion mandate, which uh, he tells them to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and, and over every living thing that moves. So man is given dominion over God's creation. It's a stewardship and a responsibility. It's not to be completely insensitive to what God has made and provided for us, but it's also not creature worship like we just read about with PETA, right? So there's, there's clarity there is important for us. But here is where it really becomes poignant for us in understanding the implications for our lives here. It's this whole distinction of what's called in theological terms the imago Dei, the image of God. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So I'm just going to throw it out to you guys. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean? I mean, what does it mean that God created man in his image, in his likeness? It might be easier for you to answer the question what certainly it doesn't mean. That might be a good place to start. Okay, good. So there's this idea of, of being self-conscious and conscious of other people and relationship and a distinction from us and the animals in that regard. The, the, the soul, it says in chapter 2, man became a living soul. God breathed in his nostrils. We'll talk about that. Right, right. So rational, the rational faculties that we have, the reasoning faculties that we have, is one one idea there. You mentioned one uh, that God is relational. He certainly made us relational beings, primarily to have a relationship with Him. Yep. We have that need, along with all the other characteristics like creativity and dominion. Yeah. So think about think about the nature of building relationships just on a human plane, right? There is a certain um, sort of back-and-forth interaction and engagement that is required to really build a fruitful relationship. So, in other words, 
your relationships that you have with other people is not just a function of you operating against your instincts or against some sort of self-interest. So, for example, uh, in the animal world, you could have uh, a certain a predator um, behaving in I think of a lot, um, behaving in somewhat deceptively friendly terms, when in reality they're just trying to instinctively devour a prey, right? So they're not sitting there thinking, you know, I kind of like this muskrat. Uh, you know, it's kind of cute. I mean, they're not they're not conscious of that. They're they're trying to lure, you know, there's, there's luring techniques that are used, instinctive techniques that are used in the animal kingdom. But they're not self-consciously thinking, I may want to hang out with this little rodent before I eat it. I mean, that's just not what happens there, right? But for us, we are conscious and, and, and responsive and, and, and we're involved in, in human interaction and engagement as a part of our building relationships. God built that into us ultimately so that we would have relationship with him that wouldn't be just instinctive, you know, command, obedience-driven kind of fellowship. It's a very important distinction. Well, let's talk about this in a little more detail, this image of God text here. So the word image and the word likeness are used. You have two different distinct Hebrew terms that are used here. So it says, let us make man in our image, and it also says in our likeness. So it, it opens up the possibility that maybe... God is speaking of two distinct things, distinct sort of characteristics of his image or his likeness. The word image uh, is the, the term selim, and I'm not sure if I'm getting the pronunciation right, but it's the Hebrew term selim. And it's used in the Old Testament for actual forms and shapes as in idols. So like an actual carved out idol would be an image of something. Okay, um, It's also used to describe uh, something that might be portrayed on, on a wall, a drawing on a wall, or, or a tapestry. So you might have, for example, in talk, it talks about this in, in um, Ezekiel 23, where there was drawings, on, there was representations on a wall of men, of warriors, and whatnot. So it's, it's, that would be the term for image. The term for likeness is a different Hebrew term, demut. It's more abstract. It's, it's a, it further explains the meaning of Im- image. But it describes something that is similar. So image is like actually a picture or a carving or a statue that represents something, whereas the word likeness is a reference to just similarity. Okay? So there is some distinction as it's used in Scripture in those terms. However, um, this particular use in this context uh, really is not distinguished like that. Now, there, there are some scholars, there are some who would argue that there is distinction. Some would say that, that the image is a reference to bodily traits, that somehow we have physiological traits that somehow bear the image of God, but that likeness is more a reference to man's spiritual nature. So that's one sort of offshoot of, of thinking is, is what this might mean. Um, and so you have image being bodily traits and likeness being spiritual. Uh, the spiritual nature of man is a distinguishing sort of characteristic of what it means to be created in his image and his likeness. But really, this text and and the image and likeness, these are really parallel terms. They're used interchangeably here, and they really just sort of support one another. Louis Burkhoff put it this way. He says they're parallel terms, and they describe, quote, man's rational and moral characteristics 
and his capacity for holiness. So, for example, both words are used in chapter 1, verse 26, but only image is used in 27 right after it to really capture the same idea. Okay? You have in chapter 5 of Genesis, in 5.1, it references only likeness. But then right after that, in chapter 5, verse 3, it uses both terms again. So there's like this interchangeable use of these terms. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When after Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So again, using them sort of interchangeably to mean the same thing. In chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 6, it's back to the only the use of image at that point. Whoever sheds the blood of a man by a man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So basically, this image and likeness, it's really not useful to try to divide them out. And you'll find this, that people will do this. You'll find writers and scholars and commentators and pundits and all that kind of stuff that will take these two terms and they'll try to infuse a lot of unique meaning into them. And it really becomes kind of speculative in nature. And the danger here is that we're talking about God saying, I created you, I'm going to create man in my image, in my likeness. So to the extent that we try to speculate too much about what that means about God, then it becomes a little bit of a dangerous territory. We're then starting to get near toward, you know, potentially blasphemous kind of, you know, categories saying that, well, this means that God's, you know, he has the same physical attributes that we do in this particular area. You're just sort of speculating on what it might mean. So I think it's important for us to just recognize that really in this context, it's, it's most likely that these are used interchangeably as, as it relates to image and likeness. And it, and it really is a reference to a spiritual likeness, or we've talked about this, self-consciousness, moral consciousness, our consciousness of others, especially our consciousness of God himself, things that everybody's mentioned here already. But, it's, but so it's, we're not talking about a physiological likeness. We know that God is spirit, so we're not talking about physiological likeness. But it is important, I think, and I think that there's some really good insight that I want to read to you here in just a second, if I can find it. There's some good insight, I think, to think about um, how even, even, even though it's not a reference to a physical likeness that we have with God, that our physical, the, the way that God made us physically, it actually does enable us to reflect his image and his glory in unique ways that are vastly different than the rest of creation. Now listen to, um, listen to Henry Morris, uh, a great scholar who's written extensively on creation and creation science. He says, we can only say that although God himself may have no physical body, he designed and formed man's body to enable it to function physically in ways in which he himself could function even without a body. God can see, Genesis 16, 13. He can hear, Psalm 94, 9. Smell, Genesis 8, 21. Touch, Genesis 32, 32. And speak, 2 Peter 1, 18 whether or not he has actual physical eyes, ears, nose, hands, and mouth. There is something about the human body, therefore, which is uniquely appropriate to God's manifestation of himself. And since God knows all his works from the beginning of the world, Acts 15, 18, he must have designed man's body with this in mind. 
Accordingly, he designed it not like the animals, but with an erect posture. Now think about this. With an upward-gazing countenance, capable of facial expressions corresponding to emotional feelings, and with a brain and a tongue capable of articulate symbolic speech. I have a golden retriever, and there are times when I look at my golden retriever, and if she's, if she's panting a little bit and looking at me in the right way, I, I just, I, I'm just convinced that she's smiling at me, okay? But probably not, even though I just let me live my dream. I think my dog loves me that much that every occasion she just look up at me and she'll pant and smile. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have been given the ability, like you are, kind of grinning and laughing and responding in, 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 in unique ways. Well, think about we're able to stand up, we're able to gaze up, but think about the rest of the animal kingdom, right? He knew, of course, that in the fullness of time, even he would become a man. In that day, he would prepare a human body for his son, and it would be made in the likeness of men, just as man had been made in the likeness of God. So our being image bearers is certainly a reference to our spiritual nature, our conscious awareness, our reasoning faculties, our ability to have relationship with others and with God, um, our ability to, to think intelligently, to think reflectively, to think philosophically. You don't have animals sitting around thinking, you know, I wonder why I like that dog food and not that dog food. It just, just doesn't, there's no contemplation like that. But we think about that. We think about those things. Do I want Italian or do I want Mexican? I mean, we, we contemplate, right? Those are, those are reflective faculties that distinguish man. Now, that's putting a silly note on it, but that is kind of part of this, this intelligence that God's given us, this, this rational intelligence and this ability to reason that's part of his, his image. But here's the thing, guys. Ultimately, as I said before, we live in a fallen world. This is a post-fall situation for us. And, and what we struggle with most, I think, is a lack of recognition on a day-to-day basis of the fact that we're interacting with and living in a world with other image bearers of God. We put people in categories that suit us. We put people in social categories, right? These people are, I really like hanging out with these people because they're fun. I don't like being around these people because they're annoying or they are, they talk too much. Um, These people over here are horrible people because of the things that they do to animals or we, we, in other words, we categorize people. We categorize big groups of people. We categorize individuals. In other words, we have to work very, very hard in a post-fall world to look around us, to look around this building as we go about our way, as we go to our workplace or to our schools and see around us image bearers of the living God. You will note that this is a characteristic of man, Okay, even fallen man, it's a characteristic. Even though that image has been dimmed, even though there's the effects of the fall, still there is a dignity and a value that has been invested in man as a creature of God's. That we have a hard time thinking people thinking of people as such, right? We think way too shallowly about people. We think of them as a certain race or culture or social interest group. 
Just look at our political system in this country. The whole country is divided up into all these different special interests. I'm going to vote for the candidate who likes Froyo and spends the summers in Nantucket. That's my special interest. I mean, this goofy stuff. Like all this, every all whole the whole country gets divided up into all these little different social segments. But God would have us recognize that we were created, and everyone around you was made as an image bearer of God. And here's the other point that I want to close with. Jesus Christ came to redeem a people and to begin to restore the image of God in us with greater clarity, with greater vividness. And Jesus Christ himself was the exact representation of the image of God in crystal clarity. Listen to these passages of Scripture. Hebrews 1, chapter 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14.9, Jesus himself said this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And see, here's where we are, those of us who profess faith in Christ for salvation, here's where we are. We're in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Who can tell me what that says? Who's got that handy verse memorized? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The rest of that passage talks about us being given this ministry of reconciling the world back to God, right? back to a recognition through this perfect image bearer, Christ, back to the the God who made us so that we are more representative of his image on this planet. And that's what we're called to. When you start talking about being image bearers of God, not only does this have profound implications for how we view ourselves and how we view other people, but it has significant implications for how we view the purpose of God redeeming us and calling us to himself through Christ, that we might more accurately, day by day, from glory to glory, with each passing day of renewed sanctification and putting off the old and putting on the new, we might more accurately reflect the image of God that we bear more clearly to a world that needs to be called back to him, to be reconciled to him, because we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. That's why the, the image of God is so important in us to recognize this. Well, let's pray. I think we're, we're done here.